Good morning. It isn't as easy to preach on the subject of marriage, which we're going to do this week and next, as it used to be. In 1960, as for example, 72% of the people in our country were married. Today, 50% of the people in our country are married. During that time, the idea of living together before marriage was almost unheard of. Now, 50% of folks before marriage live together. The divorce rate is twice that which it was in 1960 today. And uh, furthermore, uh, the Christian statistics aren't any better than the secular statistics with regard to divorce. That's rather alarming, to say the least. In 1960, uh, there wasn't much question but what marriage was uh, that which took place between one man and one woman. Today, there's a lot of controversy in our country. We have states that are approving the marriage of a man to a man and a woman to a woman. I have not changed on that uh, because God hasn't changed on that. And I say that lovingly uh, to those who are uh, involved in the uh, gay community. And I hope if you're here today, you'll hear what God has to say uh, with regard to uh, doing marriage God's way. Furthermore, uh, today, uh, 40% of the people in the country say marriage is obsolete. Uh, that it's just nothing but a piece of paper. Now, before I go any further, I want to uh, say something uh, pastoral uh, and be very sensitive as I do this. It may well be that some of you here today who are single, uh, divorced, or widowed, uh, hearing that this is the subject of marriage and hearing that for the first time, are wondering, why should I bother to listen uh, to this subject of marriage today? And then knowing that it's going to be the continuing subject next week, uh, why should I bother coming back? I want to tell you that I uh, live with a single woman, uh, my daughter, uh, 45 years old, uh, this coming September. And uh, Anne uh, doesn't have much use for married sermons as a single person. Uh, Mother's Day is a hard day for her, so I understand what some of the emotions are among single people here today particularly those of you who are disillusioned with God, perhaps, because he's taking his sweet time in helping you to meet the person uh, that you're praying that he will bring to your life uh, for you to have as a lifelong partner. And so that's painful for singles, and I want to send that pastoral word to you that I understand that. Also, with regard to divorcees and their children, uh, there are more of you in any given congregation today than there ever have been before, and you bring with you the scars from a previous marriage or previous marriages. And then there are widows and widowers here today who have that aching loneliness, uh, missing their loved one as appropriately they should, uh, as your children miss that loved one with you. And so why should you listen today? Why should you come back next week? And here's what I would tell my daughter, Anne, that she's overlooking as a single and tell others of you who are divorced uh, and um, widows and widowers, as well as some that are unhappily married today, uh, who, for whom this is a painful subject as well. First of all, I want to point out to you that uh, you are no less a part of the family of God than any of the marriages. Sometimes I think the churches send a a mixed message when they use family, when we talk about ourselves as a family at Orangewood, that that only includes married people, and it doesn't. It includes single people, uh, never married, divorced people, widows, widowers, and so forth. And as such, you may be called upon to give counsel from the scriptures uh, to married people or single people, and so you need to hear what God has to say. 
Furthermore, many of the things that we'll say today with regard to the biblical relationship between a husband and a wife also are transferable principles to your relationships at work and your neighborhood and other family members and friends as well. And last but not least, I hope that you will hear that God and your pain and your loneliness has not left you without a father himself and not left you without a husband, Jesus Christ. And so with that, let's look at the scripture for today found in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And we'll be looking at verses uh, 21 through the end of the chapter 33 in chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. This is the word of the Lord. God inspired Paul to write these words. And so they are very important as they instruct us on what marriage is to be like God's way in the confines of this uh, one text. We'll start at verse 21 which is a culmination verse of a lot of preceding uh, truth that Paul has been discussing uh, or writing to the uh, church at Ephesus with regard of what it means to be to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to live in the fullness of the Spirit. And so he concludes that discussion by saying, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This verse also provides a transition as we get specifically into uh, the context of marriage, and he continues, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the church, as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word, and let's bow for prayer. Thank you, Father, that the people of God gathered here this morning uh, pray with me that we would run to your arms, we would run to your word for truth, for constant truth, not like we have in the world, truths that jump all over the place. Thank you, Father, that it's all about you, And it's to you we run, and it's about your name that we sing. And we thank you, Father, that you would guide and direct us this day, our thoughts, our actions. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's look at verse uh, 21 which uh, provides some instructions jointly to husbands and wives. 
This is that transitional verse uh, of which we uh, spoke. And, um, and, and excuse me, verse 30, 32. And Paul says, the mystery is a profound one. And uh, the key here is what he's saying is that this mystery isn't a secret that is kept for all time. It is not a mystery that can't be unveiled, uh, and he unveils it for us. Uh, the mystery that Paul's talking about in this entire text has to deal with Christ and his church. That's the truth he's uh, telling us here. Uh, it tells us about the ideal husband and the ideal wife. Maybe you've heard the story about uh, the people that are standing on a street corner waiting for the light to change. There's the ideal husband, the ideal wife, Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, and the less than ideal wife and less than ideal husband. The riddle is which one crosses the street first when the light changes, and the answer is the less than ideal wife and less than ideal husband because the others are all a figment of our imagination. <laughs> but there is an ideal for us to strive for. There's a challenge that the Lord uh, gives us here. And uh, basically what it is this, it is this and this is what we'll be unpacking this week and next week as well. But I'll never be saying anything more than this over these next couple of weeks' period of time. And that is that husbands, we're to be to our wives what Christ is to the church. And wives, you're to be to your husbands what the church should be to Christ. We're not going to be saying anything more than that. We'll just be unpacking that and looking more in depth at what that means. But that's the key. That's the analogy. Again, husbands... You're to be to your wives as Christ is to the church. And wives, you're to be to your husbands as the church is to be to Christ. Tim Keller, uh, one of our pastors in Manhattan, New York, written a number of books recently. He's written a book with his wife, Kathy. It's called The Meaning of Marriage, and I highly recommend it to you. I've read through it myself in preparation for this, and uh, there have been many uh, new insights that I've uh, gained and some refreshing uh, that's been going on in my heart and spirit as well. When you hear the, the statistics uh, that I opened with this morning, uh, you kind of want to scratch your head and wonder if marriage is obsolete. Uh, why are these statistics uh, so bad? Well, Tim Keller opens with a, quite an honest appraisal of what's going on. First of all, he says you have uh, marriage being very hard. He doesn't mince words. It's hard. Uh, secondly, that nobody's compatible with anybody else. There's no two people that are just compatible with each other automatically. Uh, some more so than others, but no two people identically compatible. Furthermore, what you have is you have two selfish, self-centered, sinful people entering into a relationship with each other and all the dynamics that go on with those descriptions. Generally speaking, in what Keller calls the me marriages today, where they're seeking fulfillment from the other person. They're not looking to Christ for the fulfillment. Uh, they're looking to the other person for, for, for fulfillment, and they're not looking to fulfill the other person. And so when you have some of those uh, descriptions taking place uh, with regard to marriage, you see how difficult it is. And before long, and it takes a little less or a little more time, depending on how tolerant people are and how loving they are, uh, suddenly we, we see we're married to a stranger. This isn't the person I married. What's going on here? And the honeymoon is over. Another book I highly recommend to you is by uh, uh, Willard Harley, who wrote a book about 25 years ago. It's still in print and worth uh, getting. His Needs, Her Needs. And in that uh, book, before he ever talks about 
through his uh, counseling situations, counseling several thousand couples, uh, and what's emerged out of that in the way of uh, his needs and her needs, and he lists about five in each category. Uh, He says, before all that, there's this dating, this courting relationship that takes place, during which time there are many deposits being made into the other one's love bank. I mean, these deposits are frequent, uh, they're meaningful, they're fulfilling, Oftentimes, there are significant deposits. And then, strange as strange can be, we get married and we stop making these deposits in the other person's love bank as much as we used to, in the same amounts that we used to. And we wonder why the relationship tends to go south. So we've got to keep making these love deposits that were being made earlier. That's what the relationship started with. That's what got us to dancing together. That's what made for the romance. That's what stirred our hearts. And then to think that suddenly we can go to the altar and get married and cease doing those kinds of things, stop the dance, stop the romance, and expect the relationship to go on and to improve is rather ridiculous when you think about it that way, isn't it? And then uh, Keller goes on to also say that we start the question, am I married to the right person? And it's time to make a decision. And a lot of people make the decision to bail. Some people make the decision to grin and bear it uh, without any particular answers as to how they're going to improve that relationship. And others turn to the scriptures and turn to Jesus uh, for the answers. And that's where we'll turn today and next week, and hopefully get some answers that will be of some help to you who are unhappily married, uh, some additional help to those of you who are happily married, and to think that uh, some of you, as singles and widows and divorcees, may may be the Lord's will for you to be married again someday. And so it's good for you to listen to some of these things as well. So let's um, look at uh, verse 31, uh, which is uh, Paul's repeating of Genesis 2.24 goes back to the first uh, mention of, of the marriage situation uh, where we read there that uh, we're to leave and cleave and become one flesh, to leave and hold fast to become one flesh. I want to talk about those uh, three concepts, the leaving. Uh, this is not an easy thing to do, uh, particularly if you've been with your family for a long time. If Anne were to get married after being with us for the last 13 years, that would be a very difficult thing for her to do, but it's a necessary thing to do. It doesn't mean that you say goodbye and you never speak to your parents again. It doesn't mean you don't take with you uh, some wonderful values that have been instilled in you and some wonderful characteristics that you've seen in their marriage and apply them to your own. Uh, It also means, however, that uh, in the leaving process, sometimes you take some bad memories with you and some bad characteristics and some some bad habits, and you have to uh, leave those behind. Uh, It also means, uh, Linda and I made a pact when we were uh, first married, one of the good things that we did. Uh, We've certainly done our share of bad things, uh, but we made a pact that we weren't going to run to mommy and daddy every time that the other one wasn't what they were supposed to be. I knew I could go to my mother any time I wanted, and uh, tell uh, her how Linda wasn't acting like she should as a wife, and I'd have my mother just loving me, and I'd just be in her hands, and, and I would also build up an animosity of my mother's mind for my wife, and vice versa with Linda and her family. And so that's one thing we didn't do. Now, we had 
uh, 500 miles separating us, which added uh, to the ability to leave. Um, I remember the first, one of the first sermons I preached in Minnesota, I said 500 miles is a good thing to do to get started. And I had quite a few people come out of the woodwork in that very close-knit uh, family community of Minnesota. Um, I was talking with a young lady just this week in somewhat of an informal uh, marriage counseling setting. Uh, she's going to be married here in the next few months. And I said to her, I said, um, what are you going to do for uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas? And she says, what do you mean, what am I going to do? I said, you better be thinking about it now. And she said, why? I said, because you've got two sets of parents here in this town. Are you going to have it alone? Are you going to go to one house first? Because you can't go to both of them at once unless both families get together. Uh, and boy, that's going to send a message, which house you go to first. And how long are you going to spend at each house? Because I guarantee you the parents are going to be clocking the amount of time you spend there. And if you go to somebody's second, you better stay as long or longer than you stayed at the first one. She said, I never thought about that. I said, you better think about that. There's going to come a day, no matter how much you love these folks and they love you, and no matter how much they'd like to have you over, that you're going to want to have your own Thanksgiving and your own Christmas. And whatever you do this year is going to start to set a contract with regard to what's expected in the future as well. So this leaving thing's important. Now, uh, the holding fast or the cleaving, what is it that Jesus says in John 10? He says, I'm never going to let you slip out of my hands. I'm never going to let you go. And we need to come to a relationship with our husbands or our wives with that very same resolve that you're never going to slip out of my hands. I'm never going to let you go. I'm going to hold on to you like Jesus is holding on to me. And one of the things that we know is that Jesus doesn't hold on to us for his self-fulfillment. Jesus holds on to us because he looks at us. He sees us with all of our flaws, as Linda has seen me in, with mine, and with all of my needs. And he says, I see also potential in you in spite of these flaws. I see beauty in you. I see my righteousness at work in you. I see my Holy Spirit at work in you. I see my grace at work in you in ways you haven't even yet imagined or experienced. And so I am going to be your friend, as he says in John 15. I'm going to be your friend. And that's the basis for which I'm going to hold on to you. And I'm going to be your friend in good times and in bad times. In your flaws and when my grace is operating in your life. And I'm going to be your friend so that you can reach the potential that you have in me and all the grace that abounds. I'm going to give you life, and I'm going to give you life abundantly. And that's the way that we should be approaching our husbands and our wives. I'm going to give you life. I'm going to give you abundance. And, and I'm, I'm going to see your flaws, and I'm going to see your needs, and I'm going to seek to help make you the person God created you to be. That's my role. I'm going to work on my flaws as, as part of my love to you, and I'm going to help work on yours in a loving way, in a non-judgmental way. And I'm going to look at my needs and yours, and I'm going to put your needs before mine. You see, that's exactly what Jesus has done with us, isn't it? I, I don't think I'm really preaching anything astoundingly profound here in the sense of new, but it's just good, solid, biblical application of the way Christ loves us is the way we're supposed to love one another as a husband and wife. With regard to uh, this whole business of, um, of cleaving, Linda should have been from the day I said I do to this very day, 49 years later, 
my first priority. And I should be her first priority. I'm Jesus' first priority. And he loves me unconditionally. And at times when we started out, to my detriment, the bank for which I worked in Atlanta was my first priority. Your priority is the place where your love, your energy and commitment goes principally. And that's where my energy and love and commitment was going. My career, my profession. Now, I kind of cloaked that and I'm providing for my family. But when it came down to it, and I had a come to Jesus meeting one day, and he asked me, what's really more important, your wife, your family, or the bank? I knew what the answer was. I knew what the answer should be. But if I was honest with God, it was my career. It was the bank. And after all, the better I did there, the better my family was going to do financially, right? Uh, That's the way my mind worked at that time. I'm sorry to admit that I didn't necessarily learn the lesson there in the banking business. I can't tell you the numbers of times that the church has been my mistress. And Linda has been very jealous. And rightfully so. We're not doing so well, John, and you're going down, you're going to counsel a couple on marriage, and then you're going to spend Friday night at the rehearsal, and uh, you're going to spend Saturday marrying them and going to the reception. What about me? Where's my time? That's when I started uh, taking whatever honorariums that I got for weddings uh, and giving them to Linda. That helped a little. It didn't, <laughs> it, it wasn't the total answer, but it did so, you know, provide a little salve for the wounds there. So... Number one priority. The one flesh thing is an interesting concept, um, and it has a broad concept, and it it has the idea of being a a uniting concept, uh, and a uniting in all things through life that you share together with your spouse. But then there's a sexual connotation to it as well. And I know uh, we don't mention sex in the church too much sometimes, and and I'll probably get some letters for some of this, but uh, here we go anyway. Um, the Bible doesn't say sex is dirty. The Bible doesn't say sex is a no-no. The Bible doesn't say sex is just a a necessary physical act uh, in order to produce children and propagate the race. Uh, The Bible says sex is beautiful. The Bible really says sex is delightful and should be. It should be pleasurable. And there are many places in the scriptures uh, to which we can look. First of all, in 1 Corinthians 7, it tells us that as a husband and wife, we shouldn't deny each other sexual pleasure. Uh, It tells us that we don't belong to ourselves alone. We belong to the other person. My guess is that's one of the most frequently abused Scripture verses in Scripture for married people. I mean that. Um, And then there's some other places in Scripture. Let me just, uh, these things make you blush, but this is in God's Word. Listen to um, what it has to say here in in the Song of Solomon. Um, and, and this is just a piece of the Song of Solomon. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. Boy, wise, write that to your husband sometime in a little email or a note and, and see if that doesn't put something in a love bank right there. Um, His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripping uh, liquid myrrh. His arms are like rods of gold. Well, that'll do it. 
I guarantee you, I didn't come by these guns uh, without a lot of work. Uh, his arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most secret, and he's altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And then uh, just look in, in the book of Proverbs in uh, 5.19. It talks about, um, well, start at 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times. Here come the letters. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. I mean, that's the kind of stuff the scripture talks about. It's a delight. It's to be a mutual delight. And so it's to be something is to be enjoyed. Uh, certainly men and women are different, and we need to understand the differences uh, that we have among us with regard to how we approach sex. Uh, in Willard Harley's book, uh, he says sexual fulfillment is one of the five basic needs that a man has. And in uh, the five basic needs a woman has is affection. Men, affection doesn't mean sex. I'm learning that. It may be a buildup, and it may not have anything to do with a buildup. Okay? You just have to know that. You have to understand that. And there are a lot of other distinctions, too, that we could uh, uh, talk about with regard to uh, this uh, principle as well. But um, let me just uh, read one thing uh, that I think is uh, kind of a little prelim to what is coming next week with regard to when we talk about husbands. And um, it says, husbands, uh, how to impress a woman. Compliment her, respect her, honor her, cuddle her, kiss her caress her, love her, stroke her, tease her, comfort her, protect her, hug her, hold her, spend money on her, wine and dine her, buy things for her, listen to her, care for her, stand by her, support her, hold her, go to the ends of the earth for her. There are 20 things. Uh, How to impress a man? Show up naked, bring food. (laughs) Personally, I think uh, the way to a man's heart is not food. Um, And I think uh, food is overrated. So there's a lot to talk about with regard to this uh, whole uh, subject, and uh, it's a a joy for us to be able to talk about it together. Uh, This is to be continued. Let's pray. And as I pray, the elders may come forward to prepare the table, and the uh, ushers may come forward to prepare to receive the offering. Father God, thank you so much for the blessing that we have to be yours. Thank you, Father, for that blessing of having received so very much, so very much richness from you, such splendor in in your giving, starting with our very salvation and forgiveness, the grace to live each day, the material benefits and blessings of this life. And now, Father, I pray that we would in turn give back to you something that would be meaningful to you and to us to give back, something sacrificial as you have given sacrificially to us. Thank you, Father, that you will be blessed and pleased to receive these gifts and the spirit with which they're given. Thank you that you would use these gifts in meaningful ways to build the kingdom of God, for that's the spirit in which they're given. 
Thank you in Jesus' name for your generosity. And thank you that you'd make us more generous still. It's in his name we pray. Amen.